You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and as always, we've got a great guest to come at you and uh, share some wonderful information. His name is Bob Wolverton. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Doug. Thank you for having me. I've actually been looking forward to this conversation for a long time now, and I'm glad we're finally here. As have I, and it it will be a good one. And we were... um, I'm going to tell a story on myself, folks. We were kind of in the green room before we cranked up here, and we covered a lot of mileage. It was really good stuff. So we're going to try to recreate that for you here as we get into the material of the show. And Bob, as is somewhat tradition before we get into the meat of the subject, give folks a little bit of your background story. What's your journey been like, and how have you gotten to where you are today? Well, I started my career in law enforcement. I was actually second generation law enforcement. And uh, I started in law enforcement in 1984. And in a very short period of time, I got promoted to first level supervision, then into middle management, and uh, basically spent the, I think, like 80 plus percent of my career in upper management positions within law enforcement. And I also became a leadership instructor at the State Police Academy, went back to school at age 52 and got my bachelor's and master's degree in management and leadership. And that's when I actually became a leadership instructor. And uh, because I wanted to learn everything that I could about leadership. So the interesting thing is, is, as I look back on that career, and when I first got promoted, it's kind of like, I want to be a good leader, but how do I be a good leader? And it took me a long time to figure it out because most of us, we are modeling the leadership behaviors that we've seen either in our current organization or somewhere else that we worked before. And that previous generation that we were trying to model our behavior on, they may not have needed, they may not have known what they needed to know to be, to be good leaders. And so I've really just been passionate about uh, becoming a better leader myself all through, throughout my career and uh, helping other people become better leaders. And when I teach a class, <laughs> say on Friday afternoon, when people leave the class and they're so excited and inspired to go back to their organizations and make positive changes, that's what drives me. I mean, that's, that is mm-hmm. so yeah. for me when people are inspired to make positive changes. I agree with you, and that's uh, that's why I think you and I are kindred spirits in that regard. And and sounds like you know some of the genesis of your motivation and interest in leadership came from that experience in law enforcement, and as did mine with the military. And you, when you're in an environment where the premium focus is on leadership development above and beyond even the task at hand, it, it does get to be a fascination for sure. And and it, in, in that environment, you really realize the value of what good leadership can mean. I mean, it, it is literally a life and death proposition. And, um, you know, first responders, military, <clears throat> good leaders can uh, save the day or get you in some serious trouble. And bad, bad leaders get you in some serious trouble. <laughs> Well, absolutely. And particularly when you talk about life or death, you know, whether it's the military or whether it's, you know, uh, public safety, first responders sort of thing. And it's not necessarily the direct uh, direction that you give, but the culture that you create. Right. And so I do a whole section on culture in the organization and how, in essence, we can hire really good apples, but yet they spoil in a bad barrel. 
you know, and that's that organizational culture and to watch for the red flags that where you can guide the organizational culture with just a little rudder tap, get things back on track. But if you're going to be laissez-faire leadership and kind of sit back and just assume that things are going well, that's when we have a catastrophe on our hands. And like in my class, I say a lot of times as a result, people die. Yeah. Yeah. Very serious stuff. Or in you know, the private industry, maybe you have a major crisis that causes a recession, you know, a financial collapse or something, you know, exactly. there's, there's huge impacts. Yeah, can be definite. One of the reasons Bob and I connected and, and I was really interested in getting him on the show is that he's done some work in some topics of leadership that people just don't always like to talk about. And uh, I, I want to definitely lean into that. And there's one in particular, Bob, that you've done a lot of work in. You want to tell us more about that? Well, you know, I, as from some of my colleagues, I get a little bit of pushback on this sometimes. But what I've noticed, because even before I went back to college to get my um, degrees in management and leadership, I was reading the best on leadership books. And I began to see a pattern when one of my colleagues, he said, you know, leadership, it's just relationships. And at the time, I thought that was such a profound statement because it perfectly summarized, you know, the dozen or so books we had read up to that point. But as I progressed through my leadership journey, I thought the part that's missing, the part that very few of these leadership books talk about is providing direction to the organization. And even when I work with, with companies and I'll, you know, maybe have an interview with the CEO before they hire me and I'll ask them, so what direction did you get from the board that's, that appointed you? You know, what are their expectations of you? What are you trying to accomplish? And a lot of times it's kind of like deer in the headlights, like make a lot of money. You know, well, you know, if that's your mission statement in the lobby of your building, we are here to make as much money as we can. Your customers are going to turn out, walk out the door. Right, know? right. But it's that providing direction. Now, the interesting thing that I've noticed throughout my career is that when we don't provide direction, our employees will fill that information void with what they think they should be doing. And they do it with the best of intentions. But if you really get down to it and ask them, how do you measure success? Everybody's got a different answer, even though they're working with the best of intentions, which means everybody's rowing in a different direction. And when you have that sort of situation, then you have silos built in an organization, morale declines, you have turnover, uh, and it, it just leads to a whole lot of miserable things for an organization. For sure, for sure. And I, I agree with you on that fundamental principle, and I, I've said it a lot about modern day workforce. I tell owners and leaders that I work with that if, if you've done a reasonable job hiring your team, and I know for some that can be a big if, but if you have, those people want to fundamentally do the right thing. They they don't want to, as one guy once said, uh, you know, nobody wants to suck at their job. And uh, people show up, they want to fundamentally do the right thing. So I like your idea, they fill the void I sometimes go so far as to say to leaders, you got to watch out. If you feel like your team is stagnant and not going anywhere, they're not doing anything wrong, but they're not doing anything well either. It's because they don't want to do something wrong, so they might opt to do nothing. They're flying below the radar. <laughs> in, in the absence of your direction, and I like your word, I think that is so critical. In the absence of the leader's direction, they're, they might just do nothing for fear of doing something wrong. Right. 
Well, and, and uh, yeah, this kind so. of relates to the conversation we were having in the green room and the fact that I also feel that there's three responsibilities that come with every promotion. And it doesn't matter if it's first level supervision, whether it's middle management or all the way to the executive suite. The only thing that changes about these three responsibilities is the scope of influence. And so what I say the first responsibility is, is to focus on results. And again, that addresses that providing direction. What is it you want us to accomplish? And so in my classes, a lot of time I use a carpenter reference because people can refer to that or can relate to that. And so rather than be the technician when you're in a leader's position, and rather than telling your people how many nails to hammer and how many holes to drill, tell them, build me a house or build me a wall or, you know, what, what, what's the outcome you want? And to focus on outcomes so that you're no longer the micromanager, because that's the number one thing that I, the complaint that I hear from uh, people that I talk with is micromanagement. That is number one. And it's, it's when I go back to my promotion, I got promoted because I was a really great technician, but I, nobody was teaching me how to be a leader, you know? So right. it's so easy to fall back into your comfort zone of, of being that technician. So that's why I say that the first responsibility among all the other things you get when you get promoted, you know, new reports and, and so on like that is to focus on results. And that basically that focus is to provide the direction. Now, the second responsibility comes comes related to kind of a, a shift in perception. And a lot of times I hear people talk about when they get promoted, oh, I'm in charge of this function or I'm in charge of this division. And I like to get people to think about it just a little bit differently as you're not so much as in charge as you're responsible for. And you're responsible for the outputs or the outcomes, again, the results, but you're also responsible for the uh, success and welfare of the people that within your scope of influence. Right. And so that second rule is to uh, recognize that one of your responsibilities is to facilitate the success of your people. Well, that relates to something that I know you're really big on in the workplace, and that's trust. If if I have a relationship with somebody that I'm responsible for and they know that I've got their back and that I am all about their success, well, that's going to create trust in the workplace. Right. And that's going to create more of that. Um, uh, what's the word I, that I want that um, where they uh, basically volunteer effort. They, they go the extra mile because they believe in what you're doing and they believe that you have their back and they believe in what they're contributing to. Yeah. That and extra mile element, by the way, let me just interject. In, in my book on trust at work, we talk about discretionary effort. It's that idea that they can... <laughs> they can choose to go that extra mile. And that's, that's the zone you want to get people into. Exactly. That was the exact word I was looking for was that discretionary effort. Yeah. yeah. And so then the third responsibility is to safeguard their, uh, their welfare or yeah, safeguard their welfare, you know, make sure that they've got the tools that they need, that everything's in working order that, you know, there's not hazards in the workplace that it's absent uh, harassment, uh, you know, these, these sorts of things. But again, that relates to that trust issue. And one of the things that I, I try to get people to think about is if you have an employee, say you get a complaint on an employee or they do a policy violation, rather than having the default mindset of, oh my gosh, Doug messed this up again. Doug, darn it, Doug, darn it, Doug, you know, why did you do that? Is stop and think a moment and look in the mirror basically and say, what was my culpability in this? Is there a flaw in our system or our processes that in essence, there was no way this employee could 
have survived and uh you know some somewhere down the road maybe we terminate that person we think oh we fixed that problem but no it pops up again because it was systemic in the processes we created so we need to look at is there something i could have done or should have done that would have prevented this employee crisis in essence and again look internally or look in the mirror what's my culpability in this and so many times when we get promoted we think we know everything or we know the best and you know we've created these systems that are you know they can't possibly improve be improved on but a lot of times if you really step back and take a look at it um it really there was no malice on the employee's part right <clears throat> yeah it, it it's that set up to fail kind of idea and i i love your point about the leader being responsible for creating that opportunity for success. You, you know, if, if, if you as a leader can't eliminate roadblocks and hindrances and obstacles that keep your team from performing at its best, then that's a fundamental flaw in your own, you know, leadership approach. Yeah. Well, you had a guest on your show not too long ago. His name was Kevin Palmieri. Yeah. And he said something in the podcast that really resonated with me that's, that's right on topic with this. He goes, in relationships, he goes, I'm 50% of all my failed relationships. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so again, that's looking in the mirror. And I thought, wow, that is, that is so similar to the idea of what's my culpability in this event? Right. I could 50% of the problem here, you know? And yeah. there's actually a, a, a leadership book that I think, you know, as far as a beginning level for leadership uh, is an awesome resource for people. And it's called um leadership and self-deception and it's by the arbinger institute but what it basically says is you might be part of the problem <laughs> you know take time to look yeah. in the mirror and so when you know when um your guest kevin you know was saying that i'm 50 percent of all my failed relationships that that is so on point with what i try to get people to do is step back a moment and think is there something i could have done or should have done that could have prevented this from occurring. And particularly, you know, if it's a crisis situation, we wanna make sure, do whatever it takes that we identify so it doesn't happen again. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. That word self-deception, uh, it is it is an interesting one. And I just happened to have recently uh, watched a video that Simon Sinek did, an interview he was part of. And he was talking about a company that he studied. And he he came away with that same idea. You know, we as leaders, we, we've got to watch out for that self-deception of you know, we do all this work to define what good leadership ought to be, what our leadership framework should look like, the, the help define the culture we want to drive to create. And, you know, we can be subject to finding just ever so small indicators that it's working. And we, we take that to the bank and it's like, no, you just got started. You're, you're not there yet. <laughs> Well, that kind of sounds like the, the phrase uh, that I firmly believe is that everybody you meet knows something you don't know. Yeah. There's always room to learn. And I have literally had uh, chief executives sit in my class and they kind of sit back with their arms folded like, you can't teach me anything. I already know everything. And I yeah. thought, oh, gosh, it's so disappointing for your organization. Right. You know, 
even, you know, with my years, decades of experience in, you know, my uh, academic work, uh, I don't know everything. I'm still learning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, supposedly Cynic, as his story went on, he said he, he got to know the CEO and the CEO said, I'm doing everything you, you talk about on, on developing teams and our environment and our trust and our performance. And so, so Simon took, accepted an invitation to come tour facilities. And this, this was a manufacturing company that had multiple locations all over the country and on the CEO's dime and with his private jet, they went around to all these places and the doors were open and, you know, Simon could walk around, interview anybody, ask him anything. And sure enough, it was all just, you know, nirvana. It was all these aspirational values of leadership and exchange and trust and collaboration. So he, they wrapped this thing up with a huddle of all the leadership team and, and Simon says, there's one thing that comes to my mind that you're not going to be happy when I tell you. And they said, what's that? And he said, yes, you have achieved all this. Now what I'm going to tell you is you're too damn selfish. You need to go tell others how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that brings up an interesting point. I just kind of came across this recently because I've heard people say, you know, when, when their leadership is mentored in their organization, a lot of times it's like, I'm not going to be that person or I'm not gonna treat my people that way. So they know what they, what they don't wanna do, but is there an opportunity for them to figure out what it is they do wanna do? You know, and I think that's where some of these challenges are because, you know, for example, uh, in one of the blocks of instruction that I deal with, I've got a Venn diagram that's got characteristics of a leader and then characteristics of a middle manager, or excuse me, of a manager, and then the few that overlap between the two and the Venn diagram, and then ask the students to uh, list out the characteristics of the best leader they'd ever worked for. And almost with, and the, the very first one on the, on the left side under leadership is vision. And almost without exception, nobody ever lists vision. And it's like for leadership, that is so critical. And that's my definition of leadership is leadership is the capacity to be able to translate vision into reality. So in your example with Simon Sinek, obviously that leader figured out where they were going, what they were going to do, what they're going to accomplish, how they're going to do it. And it was working. But in, in so many environments that I see, um, the vision just isn't there, you know? So it's like, where are we going? And that's where we were talking in the green room, you know, as far as leadership, you know, a, a critical foundation of leadership is that when you come to that fork in the road, when the work environment has changed or the, the competitive environment has changed and you come to that fork in the road and the leader says, we're going this direction. Well, now you got to figure out how to make that happen. Um, but it's not like, oh, you know, being em empathetic and uh, transparent is absolutely necessary, but somebody's got to make the decision. Somebody's got to decide right. where we're going and then translate that into reality. Well, back to the main point, and you call it, I think, one of the one of the areas people don't like to talk about when they talk about leadership. You know, we talk about all these great and wonderful attributes on building relationships and empathy and communication and all that, but that ability to to create direction, but more specifically, execute on the advancement down that path. Um, it is it is such a, a, a critical element. I, as an example, real quick, I often am asked by leaders, they'll come to me and they'll say, well, we're going through a big change and I'm stuck and, you know, give, what do you know about change management and how can we manage that? 
there's an old simple model that it looks like an algebraic equation. It's um, D times V times F has to be greater than R, and R is the resistance to change. So you ask yourself, what are the other three variables? The first one, D, is dissatisfaction. How bad is the current situation? If, if that is high, you're likely you got a running start at making the change and getting through with uh, getting over and past the resistance. But sometimes dissatisfaction is not that great, so you still want to make the change. What do you do? Well, V is the vision part. And leaders that don't do well casting the vision of what the opportunity may look like, that's a problem. But what I argue is when it comes to making change, usually leaders do a reasonable job of describing the change they want to make, <clears throat> but that's where they stop it. And they, then they shoot the gun and they say, go and let's make this and everybody gets confused. So that's where the third variable is so important. And that's the F and it means first steps. You know, cast my vision, but now I want to show you the first steps we've already figured out. This is how we're going to move down this fork in the road and go to the left and, and turn and, and take this new path. Having that extra quantum uh, creation of those first steps, that's part of that giving direction, saying, here's how we're going to go. Absolutely. You know, and that's part of, you know, referring to uh, strategic planning. And uh, matter of fact, I've got an article. I'm trying to remember which institution wrote the article, but it says a lot of leaders don't even begin on strategic planning because either A, they don't understand it or it feels like it's going to be too complex or whatever. But the reality of it is, is doing something's better than doing nothing. You know, the vast majority of businesses in our, in our country are small businesses and uh, it doesn't have to be com really complex. Now, of course, Big corporations know that have a, a market cap of billions, if not trillions of dollars, they have a very complex strategic plan, you know, but th those are the exceptions because there's not that many huge companies, you right. know, in, in our world. And, um, but one of the things that, that you were saying on that is that idea of translating the need for the change or conveying the need. So if we're not uh, basically conveying, well, if we, this is what will happen if we don't make this change and the employers are going like, well, we might be out of business. <laughs> well, then, you know, that way might be more motivating, you know, to participate in that change and contribute to that to, to make it happen. Yeah. I want to change gears and, and go back to a, a comment you made in uh, earlier in the discussion here. One about you, you said you yourself got promoted into that first leadership role because of transactional expertise or the ability to be the technician. I think technician was the word. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I totally agree that that is the fundamental blueprint that everybody follows. I've got a business, I've got an army of people working for me, I've got a need for a frontline supervisor, where do I find them? I go pick the brightest producer, the best producer, the, the best technician, and poof, I make them a supervisor and give them a pat on the shoulder and say, good luck, let's make this work. And, and they're sitting there with their heads spinning going, what do I do? And 
sadly, I'll extrapolate a few iterations further. What ends up happening in my mind and what I've observed is a lot of people, they double down on the technical delivery part. And they they certainly work to get their team to deliver, but they take on a portfolio of their own or, or a, a, a share of the workload. They keep producing, and then again, time goes on, and poof, they get promoted yet again. So it becomes this self-fulfilling logic that says, hmm, if I keep doing that, I'm going to you know, keep getting promoted. Okay, that's what I'll do. But in fact, what starts happening, the company starts asserting these subtle hints that, no, you don't need to be the technician. I need you to be the leader. I need you to focus on developing this team or expanding this team or growing the reach and impact of that team. And that middle manager guy gets really confused really fast. It's emotionally yeah, I, I, unsettling. It's, it's functionally unsettling. It's, it's a lot of confusion. That's an excellent point that you make. I hadn't looked at it from the perspective of the, of the person being promoted. In essence, they are being rewarded for the behavior that technically we don't want, you know, and, you know, to get back to your technician example, that, you know, our top salesperson, they're usually the ones that gets promoted to be the sales manager, you know, and then they get promoted to be, you know, the district manager or something like that. And I had, had always looked at it from the fact that it was because they were a great technician. I never even looked at it from the perspective that you were saying that it's almost like the reward, the treat and the reward sort of thing is that they're they're not focusing on results. They're still being a technician and yet they get promoted again and maybe again. And so it, it's kind of a compounding problem. Um, tell me more about that. Obviously, I haven't looked at it from that perspective. Well, so and, and so what I've done with the uh, middle and slightly upper management types in now, obviously, we're talking about larger, you know, perhaps even global companies that have these layers. What I will inevitably do with those people, if I get the opportunity to watch them engage with their team, I will ask them the question, are you leading or are you solving another problem? And what what will happen is the direct reports. So, okay, I'm, I'm looking at a middle manager. He's got five direct reports and they each have teams of directs who have, and those are the frontline supervisor guys. So we're talking of an organization of maybe 50 people that roll up to my person. And one of those directs comes to, to my client and says, I've got this problem, blah, blah, blah. What would you do? And inevitably, if, if, if it's unprompted and unannounced, and I'm just observing, my client will immediately go to solution mode. Oh, well, you need to call so-and-so and do this, do that, go here, go there, boom, you're done, boom, have a nice day. And you think, intuitively, you think that's efficient, that's effective. We just solved a problem. Hey, this is great. And I say, nay, nay. I said, so I say to my people, yeah, but did they learn how to solve that problem? Did they learn anything from that exchange? All they learned was you might have introduced a new name to them, or you might have suggested a new tack, but what was your thought process for delivering that solution? What was the waterfall logic that went through your brain when you gave them those nuggets to go do? 
And would it be better for you to say, hmm, that does sound like a problem. What have you considered already? Who have you already talked to? What have you already tried doing? And get them to work through some other options that ultimately become that cascade of logic that can can be imparted for future problem solving. Yeah, I call that enhancing somebody's decision-making matrix. And as it's yeah. all the columns of criteria that they're considering. And if they can, if the supervisor or the manager can solve the problem, well, it's because they've got a couple of different columns of criteria that they're evaluating to be able to solve that problem. And specifically what you're saying, are you sharing that or broadening that employee's um, decision-making matrix in essence? So now they know, oh, and so what I used to do is when I used to be a field training officer and you're just about ready to let a new police officer out on their own, you kind of let them handle the call and they come back and they go, okay, this is what I learned. I interviewed this person. I learned A, B, and C, and I interviewed this person. I learned E, F, and G, and this is my plan of action. Well, if there's something that's missing, well, then you add that extra criteria and say, well, now what if tomorrow morning somebody comes in and uh, declares X, Y, and Z? I go, oh, hadn't thought about that. Well, considering that, well, then I would do this. Perfect. Go forward and do good. You know, so you've just expanded their decision-making matrix. Exactly. But it's so much easier to just solve the problem because it's quick. But in the long run, it's you're not helping that employee. You're not coaching that employee to be to someday basically, you know, fulfill to replace you and fill your shoes. Right. No development. And I, I had done that with an executive at one of the large oil and gas companies, and it was just coincidental. I had an appointment with him, and I was turning the corner to walk into his space, and he had one of these corner offices with two panels of glass on two, you know, two of the sides. And <clears throat> one of his people was walking out of the door as I was walking in, and and uh, he, he told me first thing he told me he said, "I saw you coming down the hall, and I was getting ready to solve that person's problem. And when I saw you, I said, "No, we're going to go through this drill." And he started asking questions. <laughs> he said, <laughs> and he said, uh, "He said, I, I think I've got it now. I think I've got it." So, um, <laughs> well, I would call that a success on your on your part. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Bob, um, we're about up on time here. Unfortunately, this, this has just been incredible. And I, I know I could go on for much longer at this, but uh, tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more. Well, first, before they do that, I would say whatever platform they're listening to this program, uh, whether it's a podcast or they're watching a video or whatever, right now, stop and hit subscribe, leave a comment, that sort of thing. And then once you've done that, then you can get a hold of me at toptierleadershiptraining.com or on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's probably the easiest to find me, Bob Wolverton. Um, super easy to find. Two O's in the last name, W-O-O-L. Not in the first name, in the second name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle joke there, folks, if you if you spell it out and think about it. Well, uh, Bob, that's great. And uh, we will have that information in the show notes, folks, if you didn't catch it on the fly there. Uh, Bob, I'm going to give you one last shot. Kind of kind of wrap this up and put a bow on it. What, what do you think the big message people ought to take away about their own leadership development? Well, I, I firmly believe in those three responsibilities that come with every promotion. And so I mentioned, you know, focus on results, because again, that's indeed providing direction. 
um, safeguard or facilitate the success of your people and then safeguard their welfare. And when you do those three things, so if you do it as a first level supervisor, you're, you're looking out for your team uh, or your squad. And as a middle manager, you're doing the exact same thing. It's just for more people. And maybe it's the entire division or multiple divisions. And then as the CEO, again, it's the results of the entire organization and facilitating their success. And so on. So the only thing that changes is the scope. And so I think the big message is if we get out of that mindset that I'm in charge, that I know everything, but that I'm responsible for the outcomes and the results, and I'm responsible for the success of my people, and I'm responsible to facilitate or to um, safeguard their welfare, uh, I think those are, you know, no matter where you are in the organization, that will turn around to, to pay uh, huge dividends all the way around because leadership, there's a whole, it's, it's a, it's like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. There's a lot of little pieces to make that big picture. But if you can do those three things, I think you're off to a great start. And again, that comes right back to that trust. When your people believe that you have their back and that they can trust you to give them the benefit of the doubt and facilitate their success, um, the organization will benefit immensely. Very good. Well, Bob, again, thank you so much. Hey, Doug, it's been a pleasure. I can't believe we're out of time already. Let's do this again sometime. <laughs> I think we'll need to. We'll probably do a, a, a second edition here soon. But uh, Okay, well, you know where to find me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, folks, uh, our show is, as, as Bob alluded to, if you're listening on your favorite audio streaming, we're certainly uh, present on video as well over on YouTube, channel by the same name. Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hop over there, subscribe, give us a like or a comment, or you don't have to like it. You can say so. I'm a big boy. I'll take your findings and we'll talk about it. But uh, we'd love to have you in, engage with us. And I always like to ask if uh, you or someone you know would be a good guest on the show, let me know that too. And for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and thank you for listening. Hope to see you again real soon. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.